Hello and welcome back to OA On Air, the official podcast of O'Neill & Associates. I'm Kyan Isaacson, back from vacation, and very happy to be talking with you again. Special thanks to Ann Murphy for filling in last week. We've got a great episode for you. In honor of the upcoming Labor Day holiday, we have an interview with Jamie Sion, a local New Hampshire author of the book, You Had a Job for Life, Story of a Company Town, as well as an interview with local union presidents. This week, Cosmo Macero and I are back talking business and news on 321 Go. Then Jeremy Crockford and Laura Warwick talked to John Bonapani, president of the United Steelworkers 12012, and Joe Curlow, president of the USW 12003, about the ongoing national grid lockout and the current state of labor relations. And in two minutes with Tom, our CEO Tom O'Neill talks about the late Senator John McCain, sharing some of his fondest memories of the senator and his father. First up, three, two, one, go. Let's talk about something important. Hello, and welcome to 321 Go on OA on Air, where each week we take a brief but purposeful look at three important topics in the world of public affairs, business, government culture, and the economy. I'm your host, Cosmo Macero. In this installment of 321 Go, there's never been a better time to stop paying for cable television than right now. And we're definitely not talking about stealing your neighbor's signal or hacking into your cable provider's server. Plenty of legitimate options now exist for going cable and files free. We'll explain. And in this pre-Labor Day week, we talked to New Hampshire author Jamie Sion, whose book, You Had a Job for Life, Story of a Company Town, details the industrial decline of Grove to New Hampshire over a 30-year period in the late 20th and early 21st centuries. And finally, we talk about foods that sound really stupid but are really good, just in time for the final Labor Day summer cookout weekend. Joining me here on 321 Go is Kyan Isaacson. Hello. The official voice of OA On Air. Kyan, it's good to have you back from your vacation. It's great to be back. Excellent. All right, then. Let's get to it. All right, Kyan, this doesn't happen a lot, but this topic, this our first topic this week, kind of started with a Facebook post of mine. Um, I was observing my family environment, and, and, and I commented that I, I feel like we're getting close to a point where the television on the wall is, is secondary and maybe non-existent because people are basically just walking around with their devices. And, and related to that, this is this is true. One of my favorite Globe writers, Hiawatha Bray, um, weighs in this week with a with a, with a you know, news you can use kind of story about breaking the bands, meaning cutting off your cable television, your brought and uh, and eliminating that big cable bill because there's so many options for doing that. Starting with obviously having uh, either a smart TV or really just going straight to your devices only, handheld, tablet, laptop, what have you. Um, and, and it really shows that there are a lot of options now for people who are, are, are watching lots of content but don't necessarily need to or want to experience it in the same expensive way being tied to a cable service or a Fios provider. What do you think? Because uh, th there's a couple of different dynamics happening at once here. Well, I think it goes back to the way, first of all, what you said, the way people are watching and consuming sort of television and shows. 
Uh, binge watching is sort of, you know, the thing now. You don't want to watch one episode and wait a week to watch no, another episode. No, TV is a nuisance. No. Um, and, you know, so, you know, Netflix, Hulu, Amazon Prime, programs like that that are allowing for that to happen. Um, and it's funny, in reading this column, I actually did not quite realize quite how many options there were. But I made a bunch of notes and highlighted some things, and I'm going to go home and actually, like, reassess. If because I spend a ridiculous amount of money on cable that you, yeah, I don't really use. If you're a typical household and you're somewhere between 150 and, like, 250 or more a month, um, if, if you opt for a, a large sort of broadband package of 400 megabits where you need that, you know, you need a lot of data to be able to process video and, and lots of content... You're talking eighty dollars a month. It adds that, up. That allow, but 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 eighty dollars a month just for that that allows you access to all this content without the big big cable bill. It's um it's not just for the budget conscious. It's just, I think it's for a lot of people like you know why am I wasting this kind of money? Yeah, I mean we are all doing things in a different way. It makes sense that we would find alternative ways to consume our television. Um, you know. I don't know about others, but even generally, there's not as many shows on TV that I watch anymore. Yeah. Like it used to be, that, you know, there were usually you had kind of a handful of things that you always watched. I don't have that much. I don't watch that much television. Yeah. The the production uh, portion of the of, of the of the video content equation is, is very important, and and accessing it is very important. The traditional delivery methods, though, that model is really changing. And uh, there are other options like Sling TV. It started years ago with the Sling Box. They have those really funny ads where Slingers. And um, there's a lot of different options. But fundamentally, an inexpensive $15 Netflix subscription, a broadband single Wi-Fi, or really just your smartphone, and you're basically watching all kinds of programming without being tied to that kind of a bill. Now... You want network programming, you want uh, certain types of cable networks or cable stations. Well, then you have to make some decisions. But if you want to entertain yourself there's all or your family, there's all kinds of options now um, that didn't exist even five or seven years ago um, to do so without being tied to that big bill. And, and Hiawatha Bray really, really details that at the, in his Globe piece. This is a great column. I would encourage anyone who feels like they're mm. overpaying for cable to read it. Yeah. All right. Breaking the cable umbilical cord. It's happening. Jamie Sion is an author from Stratford, New Hampshire. His latest book is You Had a Job for Life, Story of a Company Town, which details the industrial decline of Groveton, New Hampshire, over a 30-year period. Jamie, it's great to have you here with us. Well, it's a pleasure to be here. Tell me a little bit about how this book emerged in terms of it being a project and and, and what drew you to the story of Groveton. Um, I know we're talking about uh, a community that essentially grew around a, a single paper mill. Well, we live about eight miles from where the paper mill was, so it was a major presence in our community. Uh, about 10 years ago, I was taking a course at Plymouth State in ethnography, and the term assignment was uh, develop an oral history project, and the mill had gone down about two years earlier, and the idea occurred, why not interview some former mill workers and see what kind of stories they, they have to tell. 
And within about two or three interviews, I knew that I had struck real, a really rich, important story and that I wasn't interested in merely satisfying the term uh, requirements. I knew I had a book that I had to write. Yeah. As a, as a former journalist, I know that when you start to feel that people want to tell their story, then you, you probably know that you're on to something. Did you have that? You had that feeling right away? Well, I didn't know did you, very, or, or very did many have, former former yeah. mill workers, but a friend gave me some names, and every time I called someone, I was quaking in my boots because I figured they'd say, who are you? Why do I want to talk to you? And as you say, they all were eager to tell their story. So I was the beneficiary of a kind of a, a mourning period. I, I didn't realize this, but no one had really ever asked them about their story and what it had meant for them to work th often 30 or 40 years in this mill and what it meant to them to see the mill go down. Some of them had been retired from the mill for 10 or 15 years, but they felt it as if they had been on working on the floor the day it shut down. Yeah. Is there a... Um... Is there an enemy in this story or a dark figure, or is it really just the progress of the modern economy and, and, and how industry uh, evolves and changes very often uh, to the disadvantage of those who've, who've been employed by it? There's no one bad character who, who you can blame for this. Uh, there are a, a variety of forces. New England was the pioneer in the paper industry, so we were the first one to develop it, and therefore we were the first one to grow old. And as new mills were coming online in the South and abroad in countries as far away as China and Indonesia, as well as South America, they were much faster and their labor costs were much lower, their environmental regulations were more lax, and we as a region couldn't compete with that kind of uh, global competition, at least with commodities. If we had been able to develop markets for niche products where you could charge a premium price and not be hostage to global market commodity prices, which are low and over which you have no control, we might have been able to keep going a while longer. But basically, it was an old mill that was growing increasingly uncompetitive. But that said, I think there are a lot of important lessons one can learn uh, about how we were particularly vulnerable to the kind of uh, demise the mill suffered and, and, and the, uh, the plight of the community over the last decade. And my hope is that maybe we can learn some of those lessons so that uh, we're less vulnerable to global economic forces over which we have so little control in the future, that we have a little more local resiliency and strength and diversity so that when a bad thing happens because of global forces beyond our control, it, it, it doesn't wipe us out the way the way the closing of the mill did. I th I th if, if I recall from the book, the, 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 um, there was an acquisition sometime in the early 80s. There was sort of a long and steady and protracted decline. It ultimately um, went, uh, went, went under for good around, around 2006 or 2007. What is Groveton like today? Well, uh, Shirley McDowell, who was one of the few women who was successful as, a, uh, as an executive, She's, she was a high school graduate who became a, a vice president of a Fortune 500 company, uh, but she worked all her career at the mill, at, at the Groveton Mill. She said, you could walk down the streets of, of, of 
Groveton today naked and nobody would notice. That's how quiet it is. Uh, I would say that half of the storefronts essentially are vacant. Uh, there are some vacant lots and there are some businesses, but only really a quarter or a third of the storefronts have a going uh, business now. Yeah. You know, a lot of these New England communities that have suffered that type of fate, you hear discussion of heritage tourism and, 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 and rebuilding an economy around visitors. And there's just no replacing that kind of industrial economic anchor in a, in a community. Well, certainly we're never going to have another big paper mill that essentially is the only job in town. Uh, what we could try to do, though, is nurture a lot of smaller niche value added uh, wood product manufacturing operations uh, where instead of treating wood as a commodity for wood chips and pulp, we grow high quality saw logs and then make excellent quality uh, wood products from furniture to musical instruments to nice wooden bridges and post and beam barns and, uh, and, and probably hundreds of other ideas that maybe haven't even been thought up yet. Um, and that way, we, we would have more local control. We'd have greater diversity so that when one or two go down, eight or ten others are still flourishing. Um, and we wouldn't be vulnerable to those global commodity prices. Yeah. Sounds like a, uh, a potential path forward for Groveton. Um, we've been talking to Jamie Sion, author of You Had a Job for Life, Story of a Company Town, available at Amazon.com, I imagine, like everything else, and other fine uh, bookseller access points, right? I hope so. <laughs> okay, terrific. Thanks, Jamie. Well, thank you. It's been a pleasure. All right, this week's podcast comes in just as we enter the Labor Day weekend. It's kind of that final cookout weekend formal of the summer. Thought about foods that you like to cook or foods that maybe you wouldn't like to cook because they sound really stupid or bad, but they're actually really good. We're actually bringing our incredibly talented producer, Brooke Sion, into this conversation. Brooke, let's start with you. What's a food that sounds really stupid that you might have this weekend or any time, but it's actually really good? Um, it's not strictly something you can grill. I know this is the last weekend for cookouts, but... It's okay. Poetic license is fine. I, I guess you could you could cook parts of it. Um, for me, it's succotash. It just sounds so strange. Because it's it starts with the word, word suck. Yeah. yeah. It's like a fun <laughs> word to say. <laughs> it is. And I'll, every time I think of it, I just think of, uh, was it Yosemite? Who was it? Yosemite Sam? Suckering succotash. Yeah, what, what is succotash? It, 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 real, uh, real quick. So... Based on my recent Google search, um, succotash is actually sweet corn, lima beans, and then you can add other things. They suggest okra. Another thing I think has a terrible name and I've never tasted. Sounds terrible. Um, but Looks delicious. It is delicious. It's is like delicious. sweet corn. It's like sort of like, it. yeah, it's sweet okay. corn salad kind of. Gotcha. Anything with sweet corn is good. Interesting. Yeah. Succotash. All right. Cayenne, how about yourself? Uh, so for me, it's not, doesn't sound stupid, but it sounds really gross. Clam bellies appalled by the the, Just the sheer mention of eating anything's belly, but they're so good. Fried clams, some tartar sauce. Yeah, because clam strips sounds yeah. awesome. Clam you strips know? sound Everything great. Strip, strip steak, strip this, strip yeah. that. Clam, I mean, clam bellies, it sounds like there's like something yeah. in them that you shouldn't have. Yeah, it grosses you out. Just to, the more <laughs> you think about it, as you say it right now, I'm a little irked, but they're so good. Yeah. I mean, really, if you fry anything. Absolutely. It, it cures good. anything. But yeah, some clam bellies, some tartar sauce, preferably near an ocean or the beach, and you know, you're good to go. Happy Labor Day. Yeah. 
All right, I'm going to say this doesn't sound gross. It sounds really stupid. In fact, I thought it was really stupid right up until about a month and a half ago when I had it for the first time. Grilled romaine, which amazing. is amazing. It's, it's 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 amazing. So you take the you take that romaine head, which is that sort of long piece of long head the of lettuce, stock. the stalk, olive oil, salt and pepper. You throw that thing on the grill, get a nice char on it for not too long, three or four minutes. You take that off, then you sprinkle some parmesan on there, let it wilt for a minute or two. Oh my, cut it in four pieces. Mm-hmm. Unbelievably good. Oh yeah. But until I finally had it, I'm like, what moron would, would grill a salad? Grill lettuce. Who, who grills lettuce except a, a knucklehead? <laughs> Amazing. Grilled and now romaine, you're hooked. Sounds stupid. Very delicious. So there you go. Three foods. Sounds stupid, but are really good. So I would say for anyone listening, if you decide to eat any of these this weekend, take a picture, tweet it to us. Absolutely. Tweet us your stupid sounding but good eating foods. Including Hashtag these OA on air. All right. Happy All Labor right. Day. That's it. Thank you. That's all for 321 Go. Up next, an interview with union presidents from the United Steelworkers 12012 and USW 12003. Hi, this is Laura Warwick, and I'm here with my colleague, Jeremy Crockford, and we're fortunate to be here today with John Bonapani, president of United Steelworkers 12012, and Joe Curlow, president of USW 12003. Um, they, are the, they oversee more than 1,200 members and employees of National Grid, um, and their workers have been locked out by the company for over two months now, and they're here today to talk to us about the lockout um, and some of the safety and employee concerns we're seeing around the Commonwealth. Welcome, guys. Thank you. Thank you. So can you tell us a little bit, uh, first off, what's the difference between a lockout and a strike? I think it's uh, it's important for people to know that you didn't go on strike. You were You were in the middle of good faith negotiations, and all of a sudden you went to work and you were locked out. What is a lockout? A lockout is when a company physically locks the gates and prevents workers from doing their jobs. How unusual is it to get locked out in the middle of a negotiation? I would say it's uh, pretty much extremely uh, unusual. In 1993, we went through a lockout uh, with Boston Gas Company, uh, and I haven't uh, heard of too many. There have been a couple, but uh, it is very unusual. It's a tactic. Uh, that is just an evil tactic when you're dealing with a corporation that uh, wants to bust a union. That's what it comes down to. There is no need for this. So your members have not received paychecks in 10 weeks and they have had their health insurance cut off? Correct. Can can you talk a little bit about um, the impact on your members I mean, these are families, some of them who've been working for the company for decades. Some of them have children who are battling cancer. I know some of the workers themselves are. So can you talk a little bit about the impact of the lockout on these workers, particularly because they want to be on the job and they want to go to work? We have a lot of people who have serious medical conditions. Um, Some have put off getting treated um, for some of these conditions because they don't have the proper insurance. Um, the company cut 
everybody's health insurance within a week of locking them out of their jobs. Um, the letter that the company sent out informing people of this went out the same day, it was dated the same day as the day that we were locked out. Um, some of the conditions I know firsthand, we have one member, um, he was in rehab, and I was told that the, um, the center where he's receiving the, the rehab um, is asking him to leave. He's, he's getting treated for a serious medical condition. Um, I have another younger member who has a, a young family who found out literally a couple of days before the company locked us out that um, he had cancer. And, and he, he's dealing with quite a bit of um, anxiety about how, how he, he's, he's going to manage that now that he's, he, he's forced to pay COBRA. And it's very, very expensive. And um, he can just barely afford it. So when they locked you out and they shut off your pay and they cut off your health insurance, this is primarily aimed to force you guys to accept a worse contract that would that would have cuts in pensions, cuts in benefits. Isn't National Grid a tremendously profitable company? I would say uh, you're correct. They probably have $82 billion in tangible assets. They're looking at a $51 million rate increase, which the consumers will pay in September. Their CEO, John Pettigrew, just got a 9% pay raise last year. Uh, there's a 14% permanent tax break through the Trump administration. So uh, clearly, they're profitable. But what you got to remember, for them to use a tactic such as locking us out and cutting health insurance, they clearly went right after the union's juggler vein, hoping that we would collapse and hoping that they could move on and destroy the next generation of workers and once again just be an extremely profitable company and that doesn't care one iota about the middle class. So I think uh, in regards to their actions shows what they're made of. Uh, they talk a good game, but clearly uh, the only thing they care about is money. The intent here is to is basically to starve you guys into coming back and force forcing to take these concessions. Can I, there's a there's a public policy piece to this too. Normally, when there's a lockout, really it's just the workers who are affected. But your workers do some of the most dangerous, important work in the cities and towns of eastern Massachusetts. Describe a little bit about what your people do and why it, it is such a bad idea to replace them with inexperienced workers. So first of all, I, I, I got to say that the reason that a, a lot of people don't know about the type of work we do is because we do it so well. You don't hear about a lot of gas incidents in the state of Massachusetts. Other parts of the country, that's not true. Um, our people, their main priority is to protect the public. And I'm talking about protecting the public from what is a very dangerous product, natural gas. If it's handled safely and you have competent, experienced, knowledgeable people helping provide that product, servicing the pipelines, 
um, that deliver that product to their homes and businesses, it's safe. But when you don't have the right people servicing the pipelines that deliver that product, it can become very unsafe. And that's what our people do. They're not there. National Grid right now has replacement workers. Um, many of them don't have nearly the experience that our people have. They have outside contractors who don't have nearly the experience that our people have servicing the pipe pipeline and maintaining the pipeline. We evacuate houses with explosive levels of gas. Um, I myself have I probably evacuated more houses than I can remember over the 30 years that I have worked for National Grid. Um, I'm not a full-time union employee. Um, I work for National Grid. I work out in the field. Uh, part of my responsibilities are emergency response. So I, I personally been involved in a lot of situations over the years where literally um, a decision I made on a job site um, could have affected somebody's life um, and well-being and the lives of their families. And our people do that all the time. We are the eyes and ears of the public. This is a company that needs to be investigated. It probably needs to be audited. It's been going on since 2011. Most recently, even last fall, the Area Ray Police Station on Sudbury Street had every window blown out on an air test on a pipe that was going to be installed by a contractor. Not one inspector on the job. And on the local level, um, we've seen a lot of cities and towns step up. Um, you know, there's been, it looks like at this point, over close to 20 communities um, that have issued moratoriums or other director directives limiting non-emergency gas work. Can you talk a little bit about um, some of these communities that have stepped up and told National Grid that we don't want you doing gas work here unless it's an emergency for the duration of the lockout? Why is that so important? So you're right. It's over 20 now cities and towns that have taken some type of action to prevent National Grid from just coming into the city or town and doing whatever they want. Um, many of the cities and towns have, have limited National Grid to just performing emergency work. Um, National Grid right now, as I said, doesn't have the people replacing us that we think they should have. And obviously, um, a lot of people in these cities and towns think the same thing. What, what would get National Grid back to the table to negotiate fairly with you and to end the lockout. What what do you need to see happen that could make make them understand they need to come back because of safety and because of just decency so, toward people who need health insurance and paychecks? I'll answer that. Uh, we've been at the table with National Grid, and uh, we've been doing all the talking in every meeting that uh, we've had since the lockout. And what we asked them for specifically was win-win negotiations, where uh, we can find middle ground here, where we can take care of the numerous problems within National Grid. And there truly are numerous problems. By protecting the public would make for win-win. National Grid stated to us there will be no contract without concessions. And I remind you, this is a company that made over 3.5 billion dollars. So uh, things are difficult. And I think that the government has to step up. The AG has to step up. 
the governor has to step up, and probably most importantly here in the state, the DPU has to step up and hold National Grid accountable. I never seen anything like it. It just seems like almost every representative in the state house, every senator in the state house, uh, have supported us. The congressmen have written letters all in support of ending the lockout. Where? In this whole country, do you see two U.S. senators walk the picket line? Senator Markey and Sen Senator Warren. Absolutely fantastic support. But the support, uh, it goes across every single city in town. Uh, most recently, the Boston Fire Department is in the process of, of collecting 1,500 signatures about public safety and ending this lockout. The Cambridge Fire Department stood firm with almost 200 members to take their picture behind the banner that said, in this lockout. You know, when I'm talking to public officials, that's what I'm telling them. You got to step up and do something. Talking about it isn't enough. You, you got to do something about it. And, you know, and National Grid could end the lockout tomorrow if they wanted to. Absolutely. Yeah. And when they've been told that on more than one occasion. Great. Well, um, I really appreciate you guys coming in to talk to us. Um, in advance of this Labor Day. Um, you know, Massachusetts has a reputation as a very labor-friendly state. Um, and this really is the biggest labor issue right now in Massachusetts, if not the entire New England area. So we really appreciate you guys coming in here, talking to us about this, um, and uh, for taking the time today. Thank, Thank you. you. Let's hope for the best. And now, Two Minutes with Tom. Hello, Tom. I'm back. Yeah. Back from vacation. Back from vacation. We're ready to go. I'm ready. There you are. Terrific. Um, it seems I, I missed a lot of news while I was gone. I'm still catching up. But uh, one of the things, obviously, the passing of Senator John McCain. Um, a true American hero. Yeah. I mean... Dying nine years to the day after our own Senator Ted Kennedy passed away of the same illness. Nine years to the day. But a true American hero, five years in Vietnam, imprisoned, refusing to leave even when they discovered the Vietnamese that his dad was who he was and they were going to let him go early. Refusing, John McCain did. Because his own men were there and they were going to go with him or he was going to stay. Just an amazing story. And now he's being buried with all the symbolism one can muster, having both uh, President Obama and President Bush speak at his funeral, just to show bipartisanship and the way it ought to be. He, he was elected to the House, the U.S. Congress, in 1982. And my father was out in Arizona at a fundraiser and called the young congressman up and said, look, uh, if you're going back to Washington, you can go on my plane. And so they did, and they, they formed a great relationship over the years. And John McCain would come in and out of the Speaker's office at that point and, uh, you know, just kind of learn the rules of the, of the business and the game uh, at the hand of my father. And so they enjoyed a very special relationship. And after my father had, had passed away, somebody from his staff had run into the then-Senator John McCain and told him that he had met him on the airplane coming back from Arizona with my dad. And McCain said, you know, it was one of the great learning moments of my life. And he had a very special place in his heart for, for Tip O'Neill. 
the favorite story of the O'Neill family? I don't blame you. I, I, I don't know. I think it's it it leaves a hole. It really does. He was he was a class classy guy, and um, how he carried himself and and sort of his work and politics and you know I think for a lot of people was a leader when we needed one, right? In, in a lot of different ways. In the in the Trump era, it leaves a hole in the U.S. Senate for somebody who knew how to reach across the aisle and collaborate and join hands and get things done. And uh, there frankly, is not that type of leadership in the U.S. Senate on, on the Republican side today. So that is a hole, as you point out, and uh, he will be sadly missed. That's it for this week's episode of OA On Air. Now that you've listened, be sure to subscribe. You can find us on SoundCloud, iTunes, our O'Neill & Associates website, and anywhere you listen to podcasts. Talk to you next week.